0: Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave MacWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it.
2: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
1: How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I hope all is going well in your world. You're not getting that little bit of trepidation, kids back to school, you back to college, trying to get a flat, that September feeling, the one that John used to particularly hate, I remember, Mm. at the end of August when we were kids. Used to drive yes, him bananas. That was like the back to school thing. I used to quite like. I quite liked going back to school. You used yeah, to be a big
0: back nerd. I know you did. But <laughs> I used to always, and I still do. Weirdly, find this part of the year as a kind of the start of the year. You know, it is, yeah. this is the new year? Do you know, that kind of way. I felt like that always since school. Going, oh no, here we go again. But uh, what have you got for me? We got for you. We <laughs> know all week. Our friend Pogosian is. But he's not going to be in your dreams anymore, John. I know. Thank Jesus for that. <laughs> but that's a weird one, isn't it? You know, and that's going to feed so many conspiracy theories. Who did it? Why did they do it? Is he dead? Even you know all that kind of stuff. It's Was just it the CIA? Putin? You know, it's brilliant stuff. Russia's Russia's just a mafia state. That's yeah. what it
1: proves. I mean, this is this is like the end of Goodfellas or something. That's exactly it. This is what mafiosi do. You know, they they kill. Their opposition. And this just yet again nails the idea that this is anything other than a mafiosi state.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Does it make Putin stronger? Yeah, probably. But, you know, what happened was in the Stalinist purges in the late 20s and early 30s, John, what Stalin did was he set his inner circle against each other. And uh, in a whole series that culminated in the show trials in the late 30s, but what it did was it meant that everybody in the inner circle went from being secure to profoundly insecure. Yeah. Then they started grassing on each other. They started setting each other up. They eventually acted against each other in the show trials. Then in the late 1940s, Stalin had this other conspiracy called the Doctors Conspiracy, where he thought the doctors were trying to kill him. So he right. killed lots of
0: doctors because he thought they right. were trying to poison him. And This is the way Putin's going. I know, but isn't it weird that, you know, when you look back on people like Stalin and Hitler and all, they always seem so, I mean, to me anyway, they always seem so much in the past that this kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore because it's so kind of brutal and so blunt and so obvious. But yes, here we are again. Putin is the new Stalin. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I think he's much more the new Stalin
1: than the new Hitler, because I think, I think it's Stalin's methodology that he's deploying. Mm. Although you could say that Hitler did the same thing against a fellow called Ernst Rahm, who was the leader of the SA, the Stormtroopers and the Night of the Long Knives, 1934. Yeah. There's lots and lots written. But it, I mean, what it does, what the signal it sells to the rest of the world is you're dealing with a mafia state here. Yeah, And a mafia state can't negotiate or will negotiate in bad faith. And uh, But for the Ukrainians, it's yet another signal that this is probably going to go on for a long time. Unless, of course, the inner circle turn on Putin, which is what everybody believes there's a chance of it happening. I also saw, John, that the BRICS, the G, went down to South Africa. Putin couldn't go because the South Africans were obliged to actually arrest him if he did do that. But this is another thing. We're going to come back to this in a couple of days' time. The uh, the of the BRICS, and what it is, and it's a counterweight to NATO, and it's a counterweight to the NATO forces, and it's a counterweight to and the G seven NATO global domination, et cetera. And it is fascinating, and it's interesting. You know, I'm down here in Croatia. There used to be an unaligned movement in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, led by Tito here in Yugoslavia, by our former Yugoslavia, by Olaf Palme, the assassinated yeah. head of Sweden, neutral yeah. country, and by Suharto in Indonesia. It involved Libya. It involved Egypt. It involved all sorts of countries. And it right. was a big counterweight. So basically what they said is, we are not in the Soviet bloc, nor are we in the American camp. We are unaligned and we are we got a very different worldview. And what happened to them? Well, it's interesting. What happened to them is when the Berlin Wall fell, their raise on debt Kind of disappeared as well. And lots of them, well, of course, what happened in Yugoslavia was that the whole country broke apart. But lots of them lined up with the American consensus, what they call the Washington Consensus, which is a book written by a guy called John Williamson in the early 90s about how the Americans were going to control the world. And now what we see is that order has just excluded too many countries, and those countries are going to come together. But the, the interesting thing is there's no overarching communal belief in the BRICS, right? So yeah. the Indians are a democracy, a capitalist democracy. The Chinese are a communist state, capitalist society. Mm. The Russians are a mafiosi state. The South Africans are a democracy. The Latin Americans, Brazil and Argentina, who've been asked to join, are a democracy. Now, interestingly, who else has been asked to join, John? Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And that's a very interesting game, because Saudi Arabia would always have been seen as a client state of America.
0: So it's it's all up in the air. But also controversially as well, Iran are set to join as well. Exactly. So it's so one I I think need, we, we do, we'll do need to talk about. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk time. about this. We'll talk about this. And John,
1: speaking of former Yugoslavia and this part of the world, did you see my Eska bike that I showed you online? <laughs>
0: It was just, let me just describe this. So I get this picture early in the morning of this beautiful, sparkling red, shined-up bike that initially I thought was a Triumph 20, but of course, Triumph 20s only came in blue. But this was red, an uh, old this
1: is, Eska. This is, i tell you what it is, John, right? So down this part of the world, the most yeah. iconic brand is the Pony Bike, right? And right. the Pony Bike is this kind of U-shaped bike and it was very popular in, I think, the uh, Croatian, Serbian, whatever army in the nineteen forties and fifties. So right, they used okay. to use this bike, and yeah. then they started to mass produce them in Slovenia. And then, in the same way as Fiat, do you remember Fiat gave the license to the Russians and the Bulgarians to create Fiat-like cars? Remember, Ladas were actually old Fiat one Oh, box right. Car, right, that's right.
0: Yeah. So yeah. they gave the Fiat yeah.
1: gave the license to the commies to produce. Fiat-type cars, right? What happened here was the Yugoslavs gave, gave the license to other East Europeans to produce these ESKs. Now, Irish listeners will remember the ESCA from the 1970s. Ireland imported tens of thousands of these bikes. And you might remember on our road, the key thing of the bike was the back pedal brake. Yes. And that allowed you yeah. to do skids.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, standing up skids as well. Standing
1: up skids on the Eska. And they were really cheap because they came from Czechoslovakia. <laughs> yes, yeah, And yeah. we imported, we exported agriculture to them. And they exported both Eska bikes and Zetter tractors to us. That's was right. the exportation, right? And that came under, deal, ironically, John, this sort of, we we're talking about this non-aligned idea the non-aligned states trading together. That yeah. was under that type of thing. We were neutral, and, and, and we did these trade checks. And, back and I don't think any money exchanged hands. It was like barter. We gave oh, them food, fay. and they gave us those bikes. So they were the RTE barter account. <laughs> Do not mention that. Do not no. mention that. Although I did think the culling of Ryan Turbordy was pretty vicious. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I've been away. I haven't been watching this. Yeah. I haven't been really following it. But I mean... We talked about Stalin's show trials and whatever. I mean, certainly what the whole object of that was to bring one person down and make them representative of all the evil. And it strikes me that Tuberty was the fall guy for all sorts of carry on there. But I digress. I digress. Because I'm sure the whole of Ireland is talking about that. But, John, my ESCA, I got it for my birthday. The family gave me the Eska for my birthday. Some yeah. middle-aged men get cars. Some middle-aged men get fancy holidays. Yeah. I got a second-hand bike. Now, and then I started looking at it. But in fairness, Mark, it is Ferrari red. It is Ferrari red. And do you know why? Do you know why it's Ferrari red? Because the Slovenian company that made ponies went bust. And <laughs> the design was bought. By Italians, back to our friends, and they ah. made them look even better. So it's yeah. an Italian bike based on a Slovenian design, which was based on the esca, which was a central and Eastern European mode of transport for decades. John and globalization, I globalization.
0: There it is in one
1: globalization. Bike. It's almost de-globalization. It's kind of miniaturization. <laughs> but we digress. Let us talk today, John, about Ireland, about the fact that the Irish economy is displaying extraordinary outlier-type phenomenon. First thing you might have noticed last week, 2.6 million people working in Ireland. This is the highest level ever. Irish employment rates have gone through the roof. Yeah. The Irish economy is surging. The Irish population is surging. And most importantly, John, in the international economic world at the moment, because I follow all these things, one of the key debates is demography. But the key debate is how are Western societies going to deal with getting old? Mm. And this has been part and parcel of a much greater debate, particularly in the last few years, as populations as varied as China, Japan, the United Kingdom, Germany begin to peak. And what is going to happen to these populations is they're going to have to change profoundly because old populations are different to young populations. And at the end of the day, demography is destiny. The amount of people you have in your society is what determines everything, and so much of economic talk at the moment is based on the ideas: How do we manage the decline of our populations as the West gets older and poorer? Because rich countries get poorer as they get old. Yeah. But Ireland is a complete outlier. So yeah. The UN expects the population of the European Union to decline from between five and ten percent between now. And 2070, right? Mm. Ireland, on the other hand, in the same UN report, is expected to have a population increase of 32%, on top of a population increase of 34% in the last two decades. So, what we're doing is we are a total and complete outlier in these trends. John, I'll just give you a story from Japan, because Japan is the country that is most far ahead in its aging population, and it's the one that everybody looks at, right? Mm. Now, in 1963, the Japanese government acknowledged that some of its citizens had actually reached the ripe old age of 100. And in order to celebrate that, they gave each one of these centurions a solid silver cup, right? Now, in the first year, so 1963, John, there was 153 Japanese people who had lived to 100. Last year there was eighty thousand centurions in
0: Japan, <laughs> right? right. Yeah.
1: To save money, the government downgraded the solid silver cup to a silver plated cup, because they yeah. were giving out so many of them. By twenty twenty seven, which is not very far away, there's gonna be a hundred and seventy thousand people in Japan who are older than a hundred. And they're gonna get an aluminium cup. <laughs> and they get a paper cup, right? But paper cup, imagine yeah. that. Imagine Recycable. that, and we now, and we know in Japan that a couple of years ago, a rather macabre milestone was reached where they sold more geriatric nappies than babies nappies. Oh, what an
0: image, Mac! To so get image. your head around that, yeah.
1: So think about 170,000 Japanese people over the age of 100. Now, China isn't far behind Japan. Russia, we know, is absolutely there. The vast majority of Eastern Europe have seen catastrophic population collapses. Due to immigration. Combination of emigration and early death after the fall of the Soviet Union. So Russia, Ukraine, a lot of these sort of countries, you see a massive spike in the mortality rate, largely due to alcoholism, which is amazing when you think of it. Right? Okay. They drank themselves to death because their societies collapsed, particularly middle-aged men. You imagine your lifestyle is taken away from you completely. You're unemployed, Mm. no chance of getting a job, society's collapsed. You're basically put into the knacker's yard in effect, right? And what many Russian and Ukrainian and Moldovan and all that part of the world, they reacted by extreme alcoholism. And so the mortality rate increased dramatically. Then emigration increased dramatically by the young. So you get this massive hollowing out. Uh, Catastrophic population changes in Central and Eastern Europe, and then you see what happens in, a, in an old country, an old country, as you said, saves, doesn't invest, yeah. it needs different hospitals, it needs different home care, it needs different health care, it needs an entirely different capital stock, it needs an entirely different housing stock. Transport yeah. changes because the older people don't drive anymore, they don't even get public transport. You have to have a totally different way of looking at the world. What happens, the savings ratio increases dramatically. Because old people save, yeah, but young people are the dynamism of consumption. So, if there's no young people out there to consume, consumption collapses in these countries. So, you get these really catastrophic changes in the way in which we run our countries. Now, all of the European Union is facing into that dilemma over the course of the next forty years, with the profound exception of us. Yes, we're going the other way because number one, Irish fertility rate. So, we're still having babies, but not at the same rate as we used to. And the other issue then is, of course, immigration. We're seeing immigration levels that we've never seen before in Ireland.
0: Can I just ask you, just before you go on there, is inheritance an issue in Eastern Europe? I know when we were talking about Italy a few weeks ago, inheritance was a, a really big issue in how money was concentrated in a certain group of people. Yeah. How does that work in Eastern Europe?
1: Well, in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, the problem isn't so much inheritance as a tiny, tiny elite having most of the wealth. These are profoundly unequal societies,
0: right?
1: Uh, Another issue that people might not appreciate is that Central Europe has, and Eastern Europe, the highest, not not Russia, but Central Europe. So Romania, Bulgaria, all around here, Croatia, Hungary, these sort of countries have the highest level of home ownership, even higher than us in the world. Okay. Which is a really bizarre thing. So inheritance would be seen through the context of home ownership here, and that would be the way the wealth is passed down. But what their big dilemma is, they're not having any children, and they're not having any immigration. Mm. So these are very, very white societies. These are very, very, very monocultural societies. As James was telling us about Poland, you know, the other day, he was saying that Poland used to be a multi-ethnic society. It's now a white Catholic society. Yes, the vast majority of Central European countries have no migration, no immigration, right? Or very, very little. So if you right. walk on the street in a, in a Zagreb or a Belgrade or a, or a Budapest, you're looking at white Europeans. You're yeah. not looking at Arabs. You're not looking at Africans. You're not looking at people from Latin America. You just but, You don't see them.
0: But is that not an opportunity in itself for Africans or, or Middle Eastern people that are coming to Europe? Your- actually seeing the the gap in the market, as it were.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think it will definitely change. It probably won't change the same rate as Ireland because speaking the English language makes you very, very open to migration. Sure,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes you very,
1: very open because it's highly likely to be the default language for the migrants themselves, unless yeah. they're from French Africa, where obviously French is their default language. But as a second language, it's highly likely to be English. Uh, they feel much more comfortable in English-speaking societies. English-speaking societies are typically more open to them. Yeah. Or what I would call proto-English-speaking societies. And this is no disparaging to Scandinavians, but Scandinavians tend to have a much more open attitude to immigration. But again, you see, before we get into the old versus young and the fact that our population is increasing, there are many people at home who are now quite, quite worried about levels of migration and quite worried about the cultural impact of migration in ireland and i remember writing a couple of years ago that you know it struck me that immigration can be seen as a class issue and the reason i say that is that middle class people do not in general or typically compete with immigrants in the job market yeah. in the housing market in the education market in the health market. So if you look at middle-class people in Ireland tend to be on the VHI, for example, right? Pay health insurance, right? So a totally different experience of the health service than working-class people. Uh, middle-class people don't tend to be on the housing list, so they have a totally different experience of the housing market, even though it's tight for everybody. Of course, yeah. And poorer people, right? Yeah. But they're competing with the immigrants on those two issues straight away. It's probably fair to say that, you know, a lot of the immigrants are ending up in poorer areas. They're competing with the poorer kids in the education market. So they're actually overcrowding schools, etc. So there's always going to be a different perception of what immigration is. So if you're a middle class, let's say professional, chances of you competing with a Polish, Nigerian, Afghani man or woman in your specific area is almost zero. What happens is if you're middle class, you get cheaper Uber, you get cheaper Deliveroo, you get cheaper, you know what I mean? Because the migrants are providing all these services. Yet, you know, if you're a bus driver, you know, you're competing with immigrant bus drivers straight away. So the way in which immigration plays out tends to land very, very differently depending on what class you're in. And this is why I've argued all the time that it's essential for the state to spend, spend, spend our surpluses now to try and in some way militate against a class war between poorer locals and immigrants. And if the state is consistently, consistently saving the money that the economy is throwing off for a rainy day, what they're doing is they're exacerbating that tension between the poorer people and the migrants. The only way you can get over that is to spend the money. So spend the money on social housing, spend it on the health service, spend it on the education service in order to actually... So if you want to have a high immigrant society and a high population growth society, as we have chosen to do, you then have to say, well, it's our responsibility to make sure that that society works well. Yeah, And part of that is if you are in the magical sweet spot where your economy is throwing off these massive surpluses, putting that money aside is irresponsible because it just allows those conflicts to ferment and spending it now is essential. And when we look at Ireland and we look at our population trajectory as given by the United Nations, and we look at the population trajectory of the rest of Europe as given by the United Nations, we're in a completely different ballgame.
0: Uh, So, Mac, let me ask you, though, that given that, as you say, the European population in general is getting older, like the Japanese, what does that mean for the EU and ECB policies? You know, are they going to gear their policies specifically towards uh, towards that Asian population? And, And if we're the outlier, well, then it's going to start working against us.
1: Exactly. For very, very good question. So let's come back because that's exactly the thing because policy is driven by demography. So, really good question. Let's take a break and we'll answer that when we get back.
2: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Okay, just before we get back into that question that John so assiduously asked about <laughs> two minutes ago about policy and ECB and all that great stuff, quick little announcement I want to make for our Patreons. And if you're not on Patreon, you could join us on Patreon for the following. Over the last, I mean, it's mad now,
0: four years? Over four years. Is it over four years? Yeah, it is.
1: Wow. wow well, I'm consistently asked about reading books and how I read the books and how I read so many of them and how can I speed read them and... But lots and lots of people are saying, "Why don't we do a an economics book club, a sort of a Dave McWilliams podcast book club?" The idea being that I tend to read a lot of books. A lot of people maybe don't have the time. They're maybe worked in the corporate world that they're they're pressed for time. They're commuting. They hear about they've books. Proper the jobs. They've got they've proper jobs exactly. They've got proper jobs exactly. Not a to layabouts like us, right? <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to start. A book club. And every month we're going to read one book together. Uh, I may well read it for you. I may well take your questions, may well analyze it. But if you fancy joining us on an economics book club, and believe me, there are fantastic economics books out there. Geopolitical books, geostrategy books, historical stuff. Wonderful stuff, right? It's kind of a feed your brain moment. And if you fancy that, just join us on Patreon and we will bring you enlightenment, John, wisdom, the crack, everything. So the book club starts in September. September 1st, which is next week, I'll announce the book. We will then read it and we will join up forces mid to late September, having read the book. And then we're going to go through the whole thing. And just one little other announcement before we go back to the ECB, John. Yeah. Two great writers with two new fantastic books are coming to Dublin. I'm going to be talking to both of them. One is Naomi Klein, who you might know from No Logo, The Shock Doctrine. Very brilliant, brilliant Canadian political theorist, writer, campaigner, activist. I've known her for a long, long time. I will be interviewing her and I will be talking to her in the RDS on the 29th of September. And again, if you want, first dibs on those tickets, join us on Patreon because our Patreon gang will have the first dibs on the tickets. And then Michael Lewis, John, the writer of The Big Short. And he is going to be talking to me in St. Patrick's Cathedral on the 13th of October. Beautiful,
0: beautiful venue. That will be a humdinger. Absolutely. His new
1: book is on crypto, but it's all about Sam Bankman, Freed, this SBF geezer who is on charges of fraud. And again, nobody tells the stories better than Michael Lewis. So it's Michael Lewis and Naomi Klein. Again, join us on Patreon and we'll give you more details. Now, John. So, right, let's go back to the original question, John, we just asked before the break. Yes. Which was, will ECB policy, which is interest rate policy, exchange rate policy, monetary policy, and in fairness all European policies be driven by this ageing. And you're absolutely right. So an ageing population will save more, will demand less. It will mean that interest rates will be lower for longer. This is probably quite good news for us. However, on the other side of the coin, ageing populations tend to want to cap government spending. They tend to want to preserve their own savings. They tend to be more conservative. And what is going to happen is that If, for example, you might remember the Maastricht Treaty, John, came with all these weird things. You can only do 3% of GDP and your debt ratios had to be only 60% of GDP, all that sort of stuff. That was framed through the prism of rich, old people. Now, what's going to happen is more and more EU policies are going to be framed through the prism of rich, old, and now very old people. And we are going to have a rich but very young society. But it's not just very young. We're going to have young and old Irish people for the first time ever. Because in the past, the reason we have very, very few old people relative to workers is we had very high emigration in the 60s and the 50s. So those people who should be getting old in Ireland are actually getting old in England, are in Canada, are in America. So we have this extraordinary sweet spot where we have four and a half workers to every one retiree. The equivalent figure in the EU is two to one. Right. So it's a huge, huge difference. And for quite some time, for another about two and a half decades, at least two decades, we are still going to have much better dynamics when it comes to population.
0: So our pension is okay then.
1: Our pension, John, will be paid by (laughs) will be paid by the grit and hard work of all those people we enlighten in the book club. Okay. (laughs) Everything will be fine. But but I come back to this. That's the (laughs) trade-off. That's the trade-off. But the basic idea, John, is that we need to think like teenagers not like geriatrics. I mean, Irish policymakers, Irish politicians, the yeah. Irish electorate, we have to understand that we are an outlier. Now, the reason we need to think like teenagers is I've always said, and we've done it we've done before, you know, when we were kids, your mother, when you were 14, bought you runners that were two sizes too big for you because <laughs> you'd grow into them,
0: right? That's, I got hand-me-downs in
1: fairness. <laughs> you got hand-me-downs and, yeah, hand-me-downs yeah. That may or may not have been, but that is called planning. She's planning for the future, right? So you always have to build and construct for a larger population, not a lesser population. Now, if you look at the dynamics in Ireland, it looks like the ESRI said that we will probably have around 6.7 million people in this country. Add the Nordies to that, about 2 million of that, then you're moving up towards 9 million yeah. So you're getting towards this 10 million figure that I always talk about, that by the end of this century, there will be 10 million people on this island. So we've got a 10 million mindset. And a 10 million mindset is completely different. It's a growth mindset. It's an expansionary mindset. So that's the first outlier that we're going to be different to the rest of Europe. The second outlier, John, is what you flagged to me before we started. You read an FT article this week about Ireland's bunkers figures, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what it was, was on your mind? Well, basically how Ireland's figures are skewing the EU stats. And it was based oh, yeah. so on it, the fact that Ireland is so heavily dependent and gets a lot of its income and its revenue from the Pfizers and the Apples exactly. and, yeah. and all the multinational industrial
1: production of those. So basically yeah. Ireland is like a you know Ireland is like a Frankenstein economy been built in a laboratory yeah and now the frankenstein is up and running lots of people think how do we control this frankenstein and by by that i mean we have to cut to the chase ireland is now an adjunct of the american economy right we are as i always say we are connecticut with shitty weather right (laughs) yeah connecticut with shitty weather and we use a european currency so imagine that right completely unlike any other economy in europe right and the reason is we have this huge outsized multinational sector. The upside is that makes us much stronger. The downside is the fragility of what happens if they go. What happens mm. is there's a shock to globalization. Or we end up with? Do we end up with nothing? The thing about the shock to globalization is we can't forecast that. We can't predict that. Mm. So what we have to do is we have to basically touch wood and say it's going to carry on. But what it does mean is that Ireland's industrial production figures are so out of whack with the size of the economy yeah. that they actually that they actually influence the European average. So they're now having to take European average data ex-Ireland to give them a better yeah. view of what really is happening in the European Union. Now, of course, they're all going bonkers about that and they're all saying, Ireland shouldn't be doing this, that. But my, my question is, what do we want? Slightly dodgy, inconsistent GDP figures And 2.6 million people employed are really good GDP figures, but half the people employed. You know, in the overall crimes that you can inflict on a society, I would think it's better to have a society that's generating 2.6 million jobs, generating income, all that sort of stuff. But what we have to then assume is that we are part of the American world economically, and we are part of the European world politically. And we are our own demographically. So you're basically riding these various different horses all the time. And it means that economic policy in Ireland, the way in which we build in Ireland, the way in which we think about the future, needs to be profoundly different to our neighbours. And that's going to put us on a collision course with them at some level.
0: So are we kind of, to some extent, outgrowing Europe and we need to refocus towards America?
1: No, I think we don't have to choose. We have good relations with both, right? I've always think that Ireland's like a jockey riding two horses. Do you ever see a jockey riding two horses, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And as long as the two horses are riding together, the one jockey's position is uh, comfortable enough. Yeah. But when the two horses diverge from each other, the jockey's nether regions get squeezed and (laughs) are very unpleasant, right? So we are that jockey. They are your nether regions, John. Yes. (laughs) And they are our collective society's nether regions. So we have an interest in always America and Europe being on the same side. Mm. Which is why, in a way, the upshot of the Ukraine war, which has brought America and Western Europe together, like no other event, is actually extremely good for us in a geostrategic way. And it allows us to play that particular game. So what the Brits didn't understand, they thought it was a choice between America and Europe. And Brexit was going to bring them closer to America and the globe. You can be close to both by just being diplomatic. And by just playing the game properly. But it yeah. means, though, that Ireland needs to understand that when your population is growing, we need more hospitals. We need more schools. We need more transit. We need more roads. We need more railways. We need more of everything. And what countries do when they hit this sweet spot, when things are growing, is they spend. And the problem with Ireland is, We've got to spend now before we get too old.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.